You're there. All right. Okay, so this is The Problem of Evil by Will Stevie and Samuel Webb. Let's get into it. So as a preface, we just want to say that historic <laughs> historically, uh, both Christians and atheists have agreed that the problem of evil is the biggest challenge to Christianity. So it comes in a lot of different forms, but both Christians and atheists agree that this is probably the biggest challenge to belief in God. Um, so it's important that we address it, given that it's not only a huge intellectual problem, but also an emotional problem for atheists coming to faith. They don't come to faith because they think, why would God allow uh, XYZ to happen. And also for the Christian, it's difficult to understand why so many bad things happen. Uh, C.S. Lewis has his book, The Problem of Pain, which he wrote at the end of his life. After all of these great apologetics books that he's written, like, why would he ever struggle with stuff? But after, after the death of his wife, um, he writes this book where he's basically saying, God has shut the door on me and I, and I can't, you know, I can't hear him or understand him or understand what he's doing. So it's a difficult problem, not only for atheists, but for Christians as well. So we need to address it. So that's our goal here. And we want to distinguish between a philosopher response and a pastoral response to the problem of evil, right? So if somebody's really suffering, they're really grieving with something tragic that's happening in their life, you don't respond with, you know, syllogisms and arguments and stuff like that that we're going to talk about here. You respond with some emotional intelligence, right? And um, some care for the person first before you are worried about giving the right answers to things. You're first worried about caring for them. Uh, and likewise, if you're encountering somebody that is hostile to the faith and kind of arrogantly trying to tear down Christianity, our belief in Christianity in a sort of arrogant manner, then it's time to become that cold detective, cold you know, philosopher and give it to him straight and give him the right arguments and stuff like that. That's where that's appropriate. So you need to judge based off of the situation you're in uh, what kind of response you're going to give. Yeah. And sometimes it's really difficult. Uh, for example, one time I was talking to my brother-in-law and we were, we were going at this this problem, and like at the beginning, he was just straight up, he's like, it doesn't make sense. Uh, like, I want an answer. Let's talk like logically about this. And so I was like, oh, okay, let's let's do it. And so I started talking like as a philosopher, but then like probably 30 to 45 minutes into the conversation, I realized that it's actually an emotional problem. So sometimes it may seem like a like you need to have a philosopher response, but most of these people have some underlying emotional yeah. issue. Um, so it's difficult sometimes, Yeah. but um, we're going to quick pray to start us. So you can pull your hands by your head. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for letting us all come together today, letting us talk about this. I just ask that you work in everyone's hearts and minds and let us learn something and have an honest and good conversation about this topic and the problem of evil. And let us really reflect on this as we are approaching Easter Sunday and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we're actually going to start with a quote, like we always do, and this is just like Will was talking about C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. And so one of his most famous quotes is actually, uh, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being intended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts, in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So it's just pain and suffering and evil. It is a reality. It's part of this world. Uh, C.S. Lewis at one point also said, if you take away all that stuff, you've pretty much taken away life itself. Mm -hmm. So it's important and God uses it. Okay. 
Um, we're going to define evil and go over what evil is before we even get into the problem of evil, because if we don't define it, we aren't going to know what we're talking about the whole time. All right, so for the first point we, we want to talk about is tragedy as opposed to evil. And so when we're talking about tragedy, we aren't talking about like a Shakespearean tragedy where uh, there's a bunch of murder and stuff. We're, we're just talking about tragedy, uh, so it's not necessarily someone doing something evil, but it is like, oh, uh, a tornado hits. That's a tragedy. That's not necessarily me committing an evil towards someone um, or someone getting cancer. That's, that's not necessarily someone committing an evil, but it's a tragic circumstance. So that, that may be like suffering, but we do have to distinguish that from like an evil act. Yeah, and the next point is evil as a pervasion. So we talked about this way long ago, like way back in one of our first uh, talks, but classically Christians have spoken about evil as a pervasion or a lack of good. So it's not, uh, we shouldn't think of it as God, when he created the world, he created like two blobs of stuff. He created the good stuff and then the evil stuff. And they're both like blobs of things or something like that. Um, evil doesn't exist in the same way that good exists. Some helpful analogies would be like rust on a car. Okay, so the rust on the car would not exist without the car being there, right? It, it only exists because the car is there and it acts as a, as a parasite on the car. It's parasitic upon the good thing that is the car. Uh, maybe a better example would be cold and heat. So um, heat really exists, like there's actual like energy going on, there's particles and stuff flying around, but cold is simply an absence of heat. It doesn't exist in the same way as heat does. And so, but th this doesn't mean it's any less real to us. When we walk outside in April in Minnesota, it's still somehow super cold. And I don't understand that, but uh, we're addressing that with the problem of evil, right? So um, it doesn't exist in the same way. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an absence of heat. And so this is analogous to how evil and good work. Um, so the origin of evil is not from God. The origin of evil is from a misuse of creaturely freedom or a misuse of creaturely liberty. So first with Satan falling, uh, classically spoken that Satan fell because of his own pride, a self-willing. Um, he sees himself as a higher good than God and so therefore he desires himself or his own good. And that was a misuse of his good liberty that he was given by God. And then likewise, man fell in the same manner. We failed to obey and love God rightly. And so we fell as a misuse of our freedom. Um, and that's how evil came into the world, not from God, but from us. Yeah. Um, then we're also going to talk about good and evil as foundational beliefs. All right. So uh, <clears throat> the main thing is that we, we do know these things, uh, but sometimes it may be difficult to talk about because they are foundational, right? They, they are very necessarily necessary, but they're also known as like molecular terms. So that just means Sometimes it's hard to put a definition on it, but it's easier to point it out. Mm -hmm. So for example, like beauty, it's really hard to just say, hey, this is the definition. We know exactly what beauty is, uh, but it's easier to say, hey, that thing is beautiful, right? So same thing with good and evil. It's hard to say, hey, this is the exact meaning of what good is, or this is the exact meaning of what evil is. We have it figured out. It's a lot easier to, to point at something in, in reality and say, hey, what you did is, was bad there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I might not have a definition of evil or the perfect definition of evil, but I know what you did is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a similar definition with pornography. It's that you can't really define what pornography is, but you know it when you see it. It's kind of the same thing with good or evil. You don't can't really define it, but you know it when you see it. Um, and then the last thing would be, we know about what good, what is right and wrong because we 
our intuitions, which are God-given to us, and we were made in the image of God. And so we are moral beings, like God is a moral being. We can discern from right and wrong because we're made in his image. Um, and this is what separates us from the animals. <clears throat> so um, the main points that we're going to cover, this is kind of just a structure of the whole presentation. We're going to cover uh, a couple different forms of the problem of evil and then our responses to those different problems. So first is the logical problem of evil. This is trying to demonstrate that the existence of evil and the existence of God are just contradictory. They don't work together at all, and so God must not exist because evil exists. Second would be an evidential problem of evil. This is... Um, there is so much evil in the world, therefore it makes it unlikely that God exists. It's more of a probabilistic argument. The emotional problem of evil, so dealing with like the human response. How do we respond as humans to humans that are suffering with evil? And then the problem of animal suffering, which is becoming a really big deal in apologetics right now, so we're, we're going to cover that. And then theodicies. So that is just giving a reason why God allows a certain thing to occur. So it's justifying the ways of God to men. That's what a theodicy is. So we'll talk about that, and those are going to be our responses to those problems. So first is the logical problem of evil. This one is the oldest, I would say. It's probably the, the oldest problem. It shows up way, way back in Greek philosophy. Um, and it is trying to posit that if evil exists, God must not exist, because God would never have evil exist in a world that he creates. And so if you were to formulate it logically, it would go as follows. A perfectly powerful being can prevent any evil a perfectly good being will prevent evil as far as it can. God is perfectly powerful and good. So if a perfectly powerful and good God exists, there would be no evil. Yet there is evil, therefore God doesn't exist. So this one's pretty severe. If those premises are true, then God doesn't exist. Or at least we shouldn't, we wouldn't be rational in affirming that God exists. So we shouldn't believe in God. Um, so we're just laying out the problem here. We're going to give our response later. So just so you know, that is how this problem would go. Uh, the next one is the evidential problem of evil. Um, so that's a not as bold of, of a claim. It's actually a lot milder, a lot, uh, we can say, humbler claim. Uh, so all, all this uh, a person using this problem would say is, hey, there's so much evil that it's just not possible that God exists. Like the, It's just like very improbable. There's like, like given all these things, we, we just can't believe in a God. Right, so there, there are certain ways that people approach this and specifically four different points people make. So the first point would be certain instances. So that would be like, oh, why did God allow this specific instance? So like war or torture or murder, why did he allow this specific instance? There has to, like, there, there has to be a reason, like this specific instance was so bad, it's probable God doesn't exist. There's also with a kind. So. Why are there so many different kinds of evil if, uh, like, natural evil, moral evil, um, and so on? And if we can list a bunch of different kinds, it's like, why would God allow so many different kinds of evil if he was, like, all good and all powerful? So, again, it's probable that he doesn't exist. Then quantities, it's like, why is there so many evil instances? Why is there so much evil um, given, given that it's impossible or improbable that a good God uh, that's uh, all-knowing and all-powerful exists, right? Mm -hmm. It's improbable. Then the last one is distribution of evil. Like, it's so widespread. So why is it just, like, hitting everything in reality? Why does it affect everything? Given that, like, it affects everything, it's improbable that God exists. So all they're really showing is, like, hey, if even one of these things could be a little better, God doesn't exist. Mm 
right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, if God could make this one instance just a little better, if he could have made it a little better, um, then he doesn't exist because he didn't make it better, yeah. right? So this is the more common argument uh, from evil among philosophers today because it's a lot easier to kind of put forth. Yeah. Next is the emotional problem of evil. And we would say that this is probably the most difficult problem to actually deal with. Like human to human level, this is the most difficult problem to deal with. And we all struggle with this, right? In the Christian life, as well as unbelievers. So um, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow, more importantly, why would God allow this to happen to me? Or why would God allow this to happen to my wife or my kids? Stuff like that. That's where the problem gets really real and difficult. And I would say that this is usually, like, like Samuel said, this is usually underlying any other logical problem of evil. Underlying it, there's usually a more deep emotional problem of evil that's underlying any purely rational examination of the issue by the atheists. It's usually not always a cold, rational thing. There's always, a, I mean, as Christians, we believe that there's, we're either at war with God or we're friends of God. And so when you're at war with God, there's always that internal, why, 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 why is this happening to me? Um, so you have to understand that as somebody's putting forth what they call just a purely rational, logical case, usually there's an underlying emotional concern as well. And so you need to be able to discern what's going on in the situation, be able to mesh your response to either logic or emotion. Um, so it often requires a more pastoral response. And you, there's usually a mix. You usually need to be a mix of both a pastor and a philosopher, depending on what the situation is dictating, right? Next one. <clears throat> this is the problem of animal suffering. It's a, it's a big one, especially in recent years. Uh, a lot of people would say it's the biggest problem for Christianity. And what they mean by that is a lot of people think that Christianity solved the problem of evil. Um, and they're okay with the answer of, of Jesus and what he did. And they're like, it makes sense. But then they move to the animal suffering and they're like, this doesn't make sense. So this is Christianity's big, biggest problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, first thing before I lay out the argument is we have to define gratuitous evil because we're going to be using that quite a bit. So a gratuitous evil is just an evil that God has no reason for allowing, right? So for example, uh, let's say there was, uh, there was a deer in the forest and a tree falls on this deer and the deer is just like sitting there suffering and slowly dying for hours and hours and hours, right? Mm -hmm. So the pretty much what they would say here is that's a, uh, that would be in the, around the nature of a gratuitous evil. Like why couldn't it only be this deer suffered for 30 minutes instead of like five hours, yeah. right? It makes no sense, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and, so, and so that's what it's kind of getting at right there. So here's the logical layout of, of the argument. They would say there are gratuitous evils. An omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent God would not allow gratuitous evils. Therefore, God does not exist. And that's, that's what they're getting at. They're like, if these instances happen, God doesn't exist. Okay, so explaining more on what that term theodicy means. This is going to be our response section now, where we're responding to these problems. Um, so we're first kind of digging ourselves into a hole and then trying to get out of it. Uh, so a theodicy is giving a possible reason for why God allows X. So we're not saying we know, and this is definitely the reason, but it's saying this is a possible explanation for why God is allowing this to occur. Uh, so you can contrast this what we, with what we call an anthropodicy, which is giving a reason for the ways of men to God. So justifying the ways of men to God. Theodicy is justifying God's ways to men. Okay, and there's two broad categories in our estimation 
for theodicy that we're going to talk about. One is what we call greater good theodicies. So that is God allows X evil for some greater purpose, for some greater good to come about from it. So uh, God allows us to commit moral acts of evil because he wants us to be free creatures that are able to choose right from wrong because there's, a, there's, there's more value in us being free creatures as opposed to being like automatons or robots, right? If we were just forced to do all the things that we do, then in a lot of people's estimation, that would be less valuable than creatures that were morally free. But if you're morally free, it's kind of necessary that some evils end up coming about and that God has to allow those things for us to truly be free. If he just broke in and stopped every single instance of moral evil, we'd live in a cartoon world. We wouldn't actually live in a real moral universe, is the idea. So that's a, that's a greater good that God allows, uh, or he allows evil to bring about that greater good. Another one would be what we call the soul-building theodicy. So that is, um, God is wanting to build stronger souls on this earth. And so he puts us through trials so that we can come out of them braver, stronger, um, more dependent on him, more able to help other people, etc. And this is a great good in God's mind. And so he allows us to go through things um, that we think suck so that we come out stronger on the other end of it. Uh, the second broad category that we're talking about is what we call skeptical theism. So this is the idea that because of our finitude and our creaturely limitations, we are not in a good position to judge the ways of God. We are not in a good position. Um, we don't have the right to ask those sorts of questions because we simply are too limited in our understanding, whereas God is infinite in his understanding. Uh, one sort of uh, scientific idea that helps support this is what's called chaos theory. This is the idea that one tiny event now can have ripple effects throughout history that shape everything in the future and that we, we can't even tell where it came from. So the idea that's kind of classically given is a butterfly flapping its wings in Africa could lead to a hurricane 100 years later, and we just simply don't know. But science has kind of shown like these are actually this is kind of how the world works. And so it's an extreme example, but you get the idea. It's impossible for us to know what seemingly bad things happening to us now will lead to later. Right. I'm sure we've all experienced this with like sinful things that we've done or bad things that have happened in our lives where um, right away later we're able to help somebody else who's going through that sort of a bad thing. And so that's one example of we have no idea why God is allowing this, but it ends up bringing about a greater good. And so that is uh, greater good and skeptical theism. And we don't think that these are mutually exclusive. We think that depending on the situation, these are both good biblical responses to the problem of evil. Uh, sometimes we do have to just kind of appeal to mystery and say, you know, God allows this for, we don't really know. We're, we're limited. And you shouldn't doubt God's existence for that either because you're also limited. Um, but then sometimes giving an actual reason is a good idea. So those are the two broad categories we're going to talk about. And uh, this is our response to the logical problem of evil. So just to give the answer, I guess, is most atheists have really abandoned this approach for the logical problem of evil because um, there's a man named Alvin Plantinga who in the mid to late 20th century, he really started to defend this idea of the free will defense. So this is the idea that um, in the logical problem of evil, the burden on the atheist is to show that God does not have a morally sufficient reason for allowing an evil to occur in every situation. They have to prove that God doesn't have a morally sufficient reason for allowing any evil. So in, that, in those premises we laid out uh, where it says a good God would eliminate evil as far as he could, the Christian should just reject that premise. That's just false for the Christian. There are clear morally sufficient reasons for allowing some evils to exist. And so if we can even give one example of that or one possible example that makes the logical problem of evil fail because it's such a high burden for the atheist to bear. It's such a high claim. And so 
we can kind of diffuse that whole problem by saying, well, he might have morally sufficient reasons, so we should reject that premise of the argument. And so Plantinga made the free will defense a lot more popular in like academic philosophy and kind of defeated the logical problem of evil. So if you hold to libertarian free will, the idea that when I choose something I could have done otherwise and I could have done other than I did, then this is a pretty good route to go. And it is a tool in the toolbox, so to speak, when you're answering the problem of evil. You can say, I could have actually done otherwise and there's a value in this and God's allowing this so that I could have free will. Um, now there's a lot of Christians who don't hold to a libertarian version of free will. And so what they should rely on are more that God has other morally sufficient reasons for allowing these things to occur. So for example, he's going to make you stronger because of this, or uh, this evil happening is gonna bring greater glory to God in the future. If so, if you, if you don't hold a libertarian free will, but you hold to a compatibilist version of free will, we could talk about that later as well. Uh, but just basically that we do not have the ability to do other than we do, yet we're still morally responsible for it. Um, so if you hold to that version of free will, you should rely, you can't really use the libertarian free will defense very well, but you can um, rely on these other things like greater good theodicies and uh, the idea of God being glorified in the midst of the evil or something like that. Um, so all we're trying to prove here is that there's a logical possibility of both God and evil existing. That's all we're trying to do here. <clears throat> so, uh, response to the evidential problem of evil, the, the much more common one, the much bigger one. Uh, so, again, I put the four different points people use when they're presenting this. So, the certain instances, kinds, quantities, and distributions of evil. That's what they really point out or talk about or bring up. Now, uh, the and there's, a, there's a couple answers to that. Uh, first is the principle of sufficient reason, kind of what Will was talking about. So with any of these points, whether it be a certain instance or a distribution of evil or uh, the quantities of evil, you really just have to show one possible reason. That's it, right? You just need to show that God has one morally sufficient reason to do this thing and he will allow it. So it doesn't matter if it's like a certain instance of murder uh, it doesn't matter if it's like, hey, there's so many different kinds, like natural and moral evils. Uh, you just have to show one possible answer. And so, well, what I'm going to kind of get at is the answer really depends on the situation, right? So as in when someone says, why are there so many, why, why, why is the quantity of evil there? Why are there so many instances of evil? Or why is evil so widespread? That's going to be different than if someone's like, okay, why did this specific murder happen? Mm -hmm. So for example, for like the distributions or quantity of evil, you can say, hey, it's so widespread because sin is inherent within us. That might be a reason, right? That might, might be the route you take. But for like certain instances of, uh, let's say like a death or a murder, you, you might know, or you might be able to give an answer for that. But again, you might have to say, hey, we don't know that yet, or we may never know that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's one thing. And then here's probably the most, uh, well-constructed response to this. It is this, uh, it's going to be a Socrates analogy. So there's this idea that when God is creating the world, he could have always improved upon it. So let's say, okay, he made Socrates. Well, he could have made Socrates just a little bit better. So he could have made Super Socrates. And if he made Super Socrates, he could have made Super Socrates just a little bit better. So he could have made Super Super Socrates. And that just goes on forever and ever and ever. And so there's this, there's, there's no really best possible world that God could have created. Um, so because he, 
with a finite creation, he could have always improved something, right? So there is no best possible world per se, mm -hmm. but uh, if that is the case, then God isn't obligated to create the best possible, possible world because the best possible world doesn't exist, yeah. right? It's not a thing, right? If God can always improve upon something, there is no best possible world. Right. Um, and so that's the biggest answer there. So when people are like, oh, why is there so much of this or this? Why couldn't it have been a little bit better? Well, God isn't obligated to create uh, a world that is a little bit better because he always could have made it a little bit better. Right. Yes. So then our response to the emotional problem of evil. Again, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to a family member of me of mine? Uh, this is really difficult to respond to. This also depends on whether you're responding to a Christian or an atheist. Um, but if you're responding to a Christian, um, we rely on scripture, the power of God's word, and the, the comfort that it provides to us, right? We believe that there's power in it, and so that there's a great comfort in the countless places where scripture addresses suffering and evil and the human response to it. We're going to talk about that a little bit, a little bit later as well. Um, but just replying generally to it, what can a Christian say to the emotional problem of evil? We can say that, well... This is kind of baked into the Christian story. This is all kind of assumed. Evil and suffering is a part of the whole story. And God came into the world to suffer with us. And so as we're celebrating Good Friday and Easter, we can kind of dwell on that. It's amazing to think about that God came into this world just so he could sympathize with all of our suffering. And so while it may suck and we don't know the reason, we have a God that has suffered worse than we have and can sympathize with us. So that's something that the Christian can say. Whereas like um, a Muslim or a Jew is not able to really say that. The idea of God's suffering in their religion is just repugnant. It, it doesn't, it's, it's, a, it's a shameful thing for God to suffer or for God to die even. And so the Christian has this kind of big thing in its toolbox to say, well, God suffers with us. Um, another, another point is that our greatest scars become our greatest glories, I think. So in, uh, when Jesus is raised, he still has the scars from the crucifixion. And that's to show like a testament of to what he's of, like what he's done. So everything he's done in this life mattered and had eternal significance. And so I, I love the quote from Gladier that says, "What we do on this earth echoes in eternity." Now it's not an explicitly Christian film, but there's a lot of cool ideas in it, and uh, it's a great movie. But um, that idea of everything we do here matters, and all of the awful things that happen to us, if like done in faith and responded to in faith. God will transform to be the greatest things that ever happened to us. And we will see, as he's working the tapestry of all eternity, we're able to see in heaven how he turned the worst things that happened to us into the greatest things. And that's just amazing to think about. Um, but just in general, if somebody's really suffering, we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice, having a high level of empathy. And then it's extremely important that we respond well in the face of evil and suffering. That's what matters most for the Christian is how we respond in the face of evil. And that is a testament to the world more than anything. When, when Christians respond well in the face of evil, that's when the world really notices what's different about you. And so it's incredibly important. And there's so many countless stories of Christian saints throughout history that have responded well, been like imprisoned for years and stuff or going through suffering. And they're able to, in the midst of it, glorify God in it. And that's a testament to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so all that stuff really matters. Um, and then just to finish that off, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17, or through 18, actually. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So again, just that awesome idea of we can't even compare what the glories are that are going to await us, and this is a temporal existence, and it's not forever, yet the glorious things that await us will be forever. And so we should take heart in that. Now it's the uh, response to the problem of animal suffering, what a lot of people think is the biggest objection uh, today or the biggest topic today when it comes to Christianity. Uh, first thing that I want to point out is death and the Christian. This is uh, something we have to understand when it comes to death and the Christian. Okay, yes, it's part of reality, but with our Christianity, we have to understand that there is a new creation coming. There is more to come. It's not just like a death and it's going to be done. Right, so that's that's what I want to like premise uh, or preface this with. Um, now I'm going to start out with a, a muffin analogy, actually. So when it when it comes to making good things, sometimes you have to destroy a lot of things. So for example, if you wanted to make a muffin, you would actually have to go out, find the right ingredients that are uh, that are in the earth uh, and and growing on the earth, and you actually have to destroy certain plants, destroy certain things to get these ingredients. Uh, those things would probably die; they might regrow, but um, you would destroy them in, a, in the moment, and then you'd take it home and mix the ingredients together and make a delicious muffin. And so to make this delicious muffin, you would have to destroy some things. So that's just an analogy for like the problem of animal suffering. So um, sometimes a, a good way to think about it would be God would have to allow certain bad things or uh, let things be destroyed or hurt or, or suffer to make this new creation or get to the point where he can make this new creation, right? Um, next point, <clears throat> animals are part of the human drama, okay? So we have to think of animals as secondary, all right? And humans are um, pri primary when it comes to God's creation. So as in humans are greater than animals. So when it comes to the human drama, we can think of like a balance. There has to be a balance. I'll give an, an example when it comes to uh, thinking of all of history as like a story. So there's there's this instance where a lot of caribou were overpopulated and they were starving and suffering and just like sitting there uh, and they they were dying for like weeks on end. And so what a lot of people did is they actually released a bunch of wolves into the wild and the wolves started killing these caribou. So obviously that sounds terrible. Like, oh, wow, why would we let these wolves just kill all these caribou? They're, all, they're already suffering. But the, uh, the result of that is, one, the wolves were fed. Two, the caribou population went down, and they were actually able to eat food and survive. So mm -hmm. there is this idea of balance. We need balance. And sometimes we do have to let those bad things happen. All right, and then there's this next point, probably the most important point when it comes to the problem of animal suffering. It's that there's awareness and reflection when it comes to a human, okay? So there's a sense of self when it comes to a human. So if an animal gets hurt, let's say a dog, it might uh, react and react to that pain and uh, maybe cry or have a, a, a bark or, or, or a squeal or something like that. But the difference is it doesn't, sit there wondering about it. It doesn't reflect on it. It doesn't ask, why is this happening to me? It doesn't ask, oh, why couldn't it happen to someone else? Why did it happen this way? It doesn't do that, right? Humans do that. That's why suffering sucks. That's what allows us to suffer. That, that's, what we, that's what we mean when we talk about suffering. So first is animals do not experience it that way. They experience pain. 
they, they might have emotions to a degree, but the thing is, is that they do not have that sense of self or that reflection that we do. That's what makes it bad. Yeah, or a lot right. worse. Yeah, or yeah, a lot worse. Um, next thing is that animals are, are not human. So there was actually this, uh, this study done where uh, people went around asking uh, others in, a, in America whether they would save a dog or a human if they were drowning. <laughs> and actually, a lot of people picked the dog, right? <laughs> um, so today, we like to think of our pets as like equal in value to humans, right? Like, why would I save this stranger over here? I'm going to save my dog, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's not how we should think. We should think like, hey, humans are inherently valuable. They're the most valuable. So mm -hmm. the animals are secondary. Humans are primary when it comes to value, right? And then the last thing is that when it comes to the gratuitous evil argument, the reason that it doesn't work is because the Christian can just flip it. So remember, uh, well, this is a, a shortened version up here, but pretty much their argument is there are instances of gratuitous evil, therefore God doesn't exist, right? So if there is an omnibenevolent, omniscient, uh, omnipotent being, he wouldn't allow gratuitous evils, therefore he doesn't exist. Well, we can just flip it and we can say, if God exists, then he wouldn't allow gratuitous evils because he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. Mm -hmm. And so we have good reasons to believe God exists, so therefore there are no gratuitous evils. As in, there are no instances where uh, like something could be a little bit better, right? God chose this to achieve the greatest possible uh, like thing that would glorify him, right? Mm -hmm. He could have improved upon it maybe, but um, when it comes to like gratuitous evils, we can just flip it and say, we have good evidence, therefore we don't have to believe gratuitous evils exist mm -hmm. when it comes to the evidential problem, right? All right, so just a couple more biblical themes that we wanna draw out in terms of evil and suffering because the Bible has a ton to say about this. Um, it's in some ways what the whole Bible is about. Mm -hmm. and so. Um, some other biblical themes that we can draw out. Um, the worst evil became the greatest good. So the worst evil that ever happened was the crucifixion. You could maybe think of some other way that that could have been worse, but what made it more worse, or what made it the worst thing is that it happened to Jesus who was sinless and innocent. Right. So as we're reflecting on Good Friday, um, that was really the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, it's often said, why do bad things happen to good people? And the right response to that is that only happened once and he volunteered, you know? So um, that's really the only instance where a truly innocent person that didn't deserve it got what he didn't deserve. Really the greatest injustice ever. Yet through that, God brought the greatest thing ever, the salvation of mankind and the glory of himself through that, which is amazing. And so 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, we saw it last night at the service, but it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, but now we have returned to the pastor, or the pastor, shepherd, overseer of our souls. So super encouraging. God takes the greatest evil and makes it into the greatest good. Um, and then what man intends for evil, God intends for good. We see this in, in Genesis with, with Joseph and his brothers, how they sell him into slavery. They go through all this awful, you know, these evil deeds that they commit against their youngest brother. They um, beat him, throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery, and then Joseph goes through this super long, arduous journey of becoming eventually basically the ruler of Egypt. Um, and then his brothers come back, 
and they are scared that he will not forgive them. And he ends up saying, no, 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 this is all supposed to happen because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God is able to take the sinful actions of men and turn them into good things for his own purposes. And so just the sheer wisdom of God, we should just acknowledge that any bad thing that's going on, God must have some reason that he's bringing, you know, he's going to bring good out of it somehow. Um, another theme is that God is building strong souls. So, so many examples of this in, in scripture, but one is Job's story. We're not going to read all of Job. That would take a long time, but read it yourself. And um, we just see constantly that everything is stripped from Job. Every physical, temporal, good thing that he has is completely stripped from him. His family, his wealth, his health is all gone, and yet he still praises God in the midst of it. And um, Job came out all the stronger as a person because of all those awful things he went through. And he grew so much closer to God, who is the highest good, um, and not relying on temporal you know, things that are going to pass away. He's relying on God who is infinite and will never pass away. And so he became much stronger as a result of that. Another example would be uh, just the Apostle Paul in so many different ways. But um, I'm going to read Acts 9, starting in verse 15, but it says, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. Which is just an amazing text. And that's, God clearly intends Paul to go through the ringer so that he comes out on the other side stronger and glorifying God as a result and able to help so many people. And how, how much good has been brought from the sufferings that Paul went through and then his writing about those things and the Christian response to it, it's just amazing to think about all the good that's come from that. Um, Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So just another example of the Christian response to suffering is that we rejoice. Um, then lastly, Another example of this would be Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. So this is after Paul has seen this amazing vision of what we call the third heaven, which is a, that's a whole fun discussion of what that is. But he sees this amazing revelation, and then he says um, to keep him, basically to keep him humble, God sends a messenger from Satan, which is crazy to think about. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Like, I see that as the most like one of the most inspirational parts of scripture where in light of the awfulness that Paul is going through, he responds in that way. That's like the best of humanity. Yet it only is there because of the awful things he went through. Um, and just lastly, a point from, from Romans 9 of all places. Um, but this idea of some of God's attributes, like his mercy and his forgiveness, are amplified and magnified against the backdrop of his wrath upon sin. And so some of the, the best goods are only seen in light of awful things that occur. Right? So that's just some biblical themes that we want to draw out there. Application. Uh, one thing we could apply is just there's meaning in everything we do, everything that happens to us. So uh, in in the talk, we talked about the principle of sufficient reason. So God has a reason or sufficient reason to do what he does or to allow what he allows, right? So 
we can apply that and constantly think about that is what is happening to us and what we do, there's a reason for it, right? God isn't arbitrary. He doesn't do arbitrary things. Just He doesn't do something just because, yeah. Um, next thing, we rejoice in our sufferings. We could actually practice that, right? If something is happening to us, if we are suffering or if, uh, or if something evil is being done to us, we can rejoice, right? Because Jesus suffered way worse. Yeah. Uh, next thing, uh, answering and distinguishing the logical and emotional problem of evil when evangelizing. So the problem of evil is one of the biggest challenges or the biggest challenge, or it always comes up somehow. So knowing how to respond to it is important, all right? And it can always turn into a gospel message because the gospel is the answer to the problem of evil, right? Next, these answers are pillars when our faith is weak. So remember, when, like, especially if we're in suffering, when, when we're weak or when we're asking, like, oh, why, why is this happening? Just knowing these answers and knowing that it makes sense, it's, a, it's something to fall back on to support us, right? And then the last thing, helping others. We can, we can use it to help others in their suffering. So if someone is going through something, knowing all these, uh, all these things and what to use at what times, you can help uh, fellow Christians. Yes. Okay. No? That's fine. Right. And so we're just going to, uh, we've been doing this just on the last one, we want to keep doing it. The goal of all these talks is not some just mere intellectual pursuit. While that is a goal of what we're doing, we want to increase knowledge of, of these topics and stuff. Above all, we want to achieve the greater goal, which is just stirring up love for God. That's what we want to do. And we want to stir that in your hearts. We want uh, you guys to love God more because of what you know about him, right? So increasing your knowledge of him will make you love him more. Mm. And so we want to just finish off with a written prayer that we put together. Um, so I will read this out. Uh, Lord God, we rejoice that you so often turn the great evils into great goods. You turn the worst atrocity ever committed by man into the salvation of the world. Not only that, but you suffered with us so that we are never alone and can come out of anything stronger if we remain faithful. We long for the day when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and show us how our greatest scars become our greatest glories. We praise your holy name. Amen. So now it is Q&A time. Q&A.